what we're doing on Sunday mornings. Here's what I'd like to do to start. Some of you already have your phones out. Of course, you're reading the Bible. I know that. But if you have your phones or if you have a calculator, we're going to do a little bit of math. But let's do the math. Take it out. This is your chance. I want you to figure out, first of all, how many hours roughly over the course of a lifetime a committed Christian might spend in worship at the church. So let's do this. Let's imagine it's a good, healthy worship experience. Two hours, okay? Enter two. And, and let's say you never miss a Sunday. You do that 52 Sundays a year. Two times 52. And let's say it's, it's almost a cradle-to-grave experience for you. Let's do 75. Some of you are shocked. Wait, that's not enough. Okay, but that, just for the sake of the math, what do you get? 2 times 52 times 75? 7,800. Okay. Store that in memory. Okay, that's the first number. 7,800 hours spent in collective worship as God's people. Now, let's think about the work that you do. 40 hours a week. Enter 40. I know it's not enough, but let's just put it down there. Uh, and let's say you've been privileged to have four weeks of vacation every year throughout your career. So 48 weeks a year, 40 times 48. And let's say you, you are, again, were privileged to, to plan well and save well, and you got to retire at 65. So let's imagine that you worked for 40 years. What do you come up with? 76,000. 800, roughly 10 times the number of hours you would spend in worship. And remember, we're being really conservative on the work side, and we're being really generous on the worship side. Wouldn't it be exciting if your faith felt as alive, as vital, as connected, and as relevant in that 76,800 hours as I hope it does in the 7,800 hours that you spend together in worship. That's what we want to talk about for the next five weeks in a series that we have titled The Gospel at Work. And I'm going to start with a, a classic illustration here. Uh, this is from Alistair McIntyre, who wrote an amazing book called After Virtue. Kind of an important book in this area. And if you're looking for a book to read, a fantastic book. But McIntyre starts with a funny illustration. In the book, he asks you to imagine that you're standing at a bus stop. And a young man that you don't know, never met before, a young man comes up to you and says, the name of the wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. <laughs> now, you speak English. You understand the sentence, and yet that action makes no sense to you whatsoever. You don't know what it means. And the only way to make sense of what that means is to try and place it in the middle of a bigger story, right? In the context of a larger story. For example, maybe you assume that this person is not right, right? Maybe there's some mental illness at work. That would explain why a man that you've never met before ambles up next to you and says, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. Here's another possibility. This is one McIntyre suggests. Maybe yesterday, someone who was close to your appearance, your 
your height, your, your hair color, your, your, your general look. Maybe somebody like that approached him yesterday in the library and said, you don't by chance know the name of the common wild duck. And then having seen you a day later standing at the, dust, the, uh, the bus stop mistook you for the other person and says, oh yeah, by the way, the name of that common wild duck you were looking for, histrionicus, 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 that too would explain what's going on. Or, or a third story, another possibility. It could be that young man is a foreign spy meeting at a prearranged rendezvous point and using that ill-chosen code sentence as a way of identifying himself to his contact, histrionicus, histrionicus, histrionicus. Three different stories, and all of them will make sense of what happened, right? And what you're going to try and do next is going to depend on what story you assume is true. If you assume that he's a foreign spy, maybe you're going to have to kill him. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> but if, if it turns out he just had a mental illness, that would be a shame, wouldn't it? On the other hand, maybe you're going to call somebody. Maybe you'll call the police or first responders. Maybe you're going to try and engage in some sort of conversation. In other words, the story in which you put that encounter is going to determine how you understood what happened. Your work will make no sense to you until you put it in the middle of a bigger story. And I think there's a lot of Christians who do this. And for many Christians, the story runs something like this. In church, or on behalf of the church, I'm doing God's work. Out there, I'm just trying to make a living. So that I can do God's work here when I'm in the church. So that I have the resources and the money and the health and the time to support ministries here and and fund missionaries over there. That's one story. And it's a story that's true for lots of people. But if that's your story, it means that you'll actually make very little effort to shape your work according to your faith. That 76,800 hours are not going to be really well connected to the 7,800 hours. And you'll seal your faith off away from your work. That's probably, in some ways, that's the path of least resistance. Because you just get to... You just get to blend in with the way work is done in your field. You don't have to do any of the hard work of asking how your work is going to reflect your Christian convictions and your Christian values. Now listen, the story makes some sense. I'm not saying it doesn't. But I don't think that's what the Bible says. Because the Bible says Jesus is a king. And if he's a king, that means he's a king of everything. Therefore, every area of your life. And you can't just blindly accept that story. Instead, and we're following here Tim Keller as a guide, not just in the message, but over the course of these next weeks. Instead, he says, you need to try and place it in another story, in the Bible's story. And for those of you who were here last year, you'll recall that the Bible story happens in these four large movements. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. That's the key idea behind this book. And it'll be an idea that you unpack 
a little bit over the course of the next five weeks in your small groups. Unless you understand that God is the creator of all things, and everything that He created is good. Unless you understand that we're fallen. Fallen in such a way, it's not just that we're as bad as bad could be, but if sin was blue, we'd be blue all over. In your mind, your emotions, life in public, life in private, it all gets distorted. It's not like in the church everything is sacred and out there everything is profane. Sin is just distorting every part of your life. There's creation, there's fall. Thirdly, there's redemption, which is not just that your sins are forgiven, but that your life, into your life, comes the Holy Spirit. And you're now a new creation. That means all things are made new. And that can't just mean God makes things new in my family, but not in my work. All things get renewed. And then finally, there's restoration. Which means that the end goal that God has in mind is not simply God taking us away and depositing us in a spiritual netherland somewhere. He's restoring this world, this creation, the goodness of work, the goodness promised of our future is linked to what God is doing in restoring the world. Now listen, one of the things that you could do, and maybe you will do in your small groups, is go through and have that kind of discussion about how each of those things, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, how each of those things affects the way that you work. Or maybe you'll want to unpack, if you grab your notes on the back page, maybe you want to unpack this week some of the things that, that the Scriptures say about work, some of the ways of understanding work as as a means of promoting justice in the world, as a, as a means of demonstrating integrity, a, a, as a way of saying that there's excellence to be achieved or beauty to be named, all, all of those different verses. Maybe, maybe you want to spend some time thinking about that this week, but we're going to go in a little bit of a different direction. So you can skip ahead right down to the bottom where it says redefining work. And we're going to spend about 15 minutes or so and go through these four or five kind of practical ways that the theology of the Bible shapes our understanding of work. This is meant to be kind of a teaser for the rest of the series. And some of these concepts we're going to unpack with a little greater depth and we'll dig into particular passage of Scripture. You, you already heard our theme Scripture read this morning. What a stunning Scripture reader that was. I, my, my goodness. Here, here's the, here's the first thing. And again, for, for those of you who want to pick up uh, Every Good Endeavor, um, the book, you'll see that we're following a trajectory that, that Tim Keller and, uh, and Catherine Leary Alsdorf lay out. But here's the first thing. Faith gives you an inner ballast. An inner ballast without which work can destroy you. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a physician, uh, a doctor who became a pastor and a preacher. He was very aware that the professions, and he was aware of medicine in particular, he was very aware that, that an awful lot of professions, uh, well, he put it this way. He said that medical men that he knew, and he worked in a day when, unfortunately, they were all men, but medical men that he knew, when they died, you could probably just write this on their gravestone. Born a man, died 
a doctor. And what he meant by that is that it becomes your identity. You can't imagine who you would be without you being a doctor. Your whole identity is based first and foremost in being a doctor, not a Christian. Your self-worth, your self-importance, your competence, it all gets wrapped up in your work. That's why losing work is so devastating in this culture. It's not just a crisis of finance, it's a crisis of identity. Now listen, if, if we had the time, I could make a case that in more traditional cultures, maybe in traditional Asian or South Asian cultures in the past, the way that you found your self-worth was by fulfilling your role in the life of the family, the role that you were assigned. So it was being a good father, or a good mother, a good son, a good daughter. And if you're good at that role, you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm a good person. And where does your work fit into that view of the world? Work is a means to an end. The reason I want to be successful is so I can be successful for my family. I want to provide for my family. And as long as I have a good family and I'm providing for the needs of my family, I'm a good person. Work is the means to an end. Now, there's a problem with that, I suppose, but there's a lot that's laudable in that. What I really want to talk about this morning, though, is, is Western culture. Because in Western culture, work is not the means to an end. Work has become an end in itself. We know we're kind of an individualistic culture. And it means that we're told in a million different ways from the time that we are little that you can be anything you want to be. You get to decide who you're going to be and, and name it and shape it. And the biggest choices in that are around work and relationship. Because relationship is, in our society, at least so, so deeply flawed and traumatic and prone to error, it becomes work that is the primary indicator of self-work. If I'm successful, if I've climbed the ladder, if I make money, if I'm known in the industry, that becomes the linchpin of my identity. And as a result, I get enslaved. Here's how. If your work is, ident is your identity and you're successful, it goes to your head. You, you can't help it. It just does. If your work is your identity and you feel like you're a failure, it goes to your heart and it breaks you. If your work is your identity and you become successful, it destroys you because it makes you full of yourself. If you feel like you failed, it destroys you because it makes you feel worthless. Here's something else that happens too, and, and, and see if this rings true to you. It makes you think, and this is how it goes to your head, that because you're a good accountant, or a good businesswoman, or you make good money, because you're good at this one thing, that you're likely to be good at everything else. It means that you're going to be super smart as a parent, or about how you choose to marry, when the truth is you're as stupid as everybody else. <laughs> you start to believe that because I did really well in this area of my life, I'm going to have great insight and success in all these other areas of my life. Incidentally, isn't that why we have professional athletes out there selling trucks or cell phones? 
They don't know anything about the automotive industry or electronics, but we believe that their competency on the court or the field translates into those areas. It's why we have actors and musicians weighing in on politics and economics, not because they're smart in those areas, but because we think success translates. It's not just that it goes to their heads, it goes to our heads when we think about them. If work is your identity, if your self-worth is based on your work, then even if you're successful, it destroys you. And if you're not successful, it breaks you down. Your whole life gets distorted. You have a, a deep identity, a, a deep sense of worth, a deep sense of value that you're searching for. And you're trying to find it in something that can't provide it. It's got to be in Christ. It's got to be. And that whole area, the story of redemption, what it means to be redeemed in Christ, it will have a tremendous impact on how you do your work. You're going to get to talk about that, and we'll spend one of our Sundays unpacking that. Secondly, though, your faith also gives you a concept of the dignity of work, of all work, even even simple work. Without that, work can bore you, it can tire you, it can demoralize you. Remember, if the first point is that faith gives you a sense of inner ballast, without which work could destroy you, here's the second one. Faith gives you a concept of the dignity and the worth of all work, even simple work, without which it could bore you. Martin Luther wrote extensively on this. Martin Luther, the architect of the Reformation. This is the 500th anniversary. We talked about that, right? Okay. Yeah. Martin Luther looks at a whole lot of places in the Bible where it says, look, God feeds every living thing. God loves everything that he's made. He provides for all things. There's other places in the Bible where it says that it's God who strengthens the bars of your gates, which is a way of saying it's God who keeps your city, your society strong and safe and secure. And then Luther goes on to say, just think with me, he says, if God is taking credit for that, God's saying, I feed you, I make your city safe. Think about it. How is God doing that? How is it that God is feeding you? He's feeding you through the farmers. He's feeding you through the the simplest farm girl who milks the cow. He's feeding you through the humblest truck driver who transports the milk to the dairy. In other words, people who do even the simplest of work are actually fingers of God. Or Luther says they're masks of God. This is God at work. God is loving you and God is doing things for you and He's chosen to do it through the work of other people. And therefore, all work, Luther says, is God's work. It's God's way of caring for creation. Now, unless you have a theology that helps you see that, you will miss the dignity of work. It's not just the doctor who saves people's lives or the innovator who develops some technology that's going to change the world or the benefactor who contributes millions of dollars towards starving children in Africa. It's all work. So when you look at somebody, maybe they work as a doorman or a cleaner or a crossing guard, your theology should tell you that all work is God's work. 
All work that's done well. All work that, that helps somebody else's God's... I mean, of course, not producing pornography or... You know what I mean. All work is God's work. There is... I wasn't going to mention... I think I will. There is, especially among, I guess you would call them white-collar Christians, sometimes a bit of a sneering attitude towards those who work in the service industry. Maybe they don't make a lot of money. Maybe they push a broom. How could that be God's work? You realize, don't you, that unless somebody cleans your house or your office, you will die. Really. Unless somebody is sweeping your floors and taking out your trash and cleaning your washrooms, your very life, you'll die. I mean, you can't live in the middle of that. You may call it simple work, but it's God's way of strengthening the bars of your gates. So what, what Luther was trying to bring out was this key idea. One of the ways to do work as a Christian is to do it well. Think about that for a second. If God is feeding the world through you as a farmer or a grocery store clerk or a truck driver, what does it mean to be a Christian farmer or a Christian clerk? It it, it means to produce and display and offer great food for a fair price. Maybe to put a finer point on it, say you are an airline pilot. What does it mean to be a truly Christian airline pilot? Land the plane. Do it smoothly. Do it well. Do it every time. I mean, if you can talk to your passengers about Jesus while you're up there, that's great. That's icing on the cake. You need to land the plane. You need to be good at it. You need to be great. When you think about the integration of faith and work, hold on to this idea that work, your work, is one of the ways that God is caring for His creation. I expect nobody knows this quite more dearly or deeply than stay-at-home moms and dads. And you're caring, you're in that privileged position of caring for for one of those new creations there on earth. All work, even or all legitimate work, even the simplest of work, is God's work. So even if you've got a job that doesn't feel exciting, sometimes you get bored with it, if you've got the right theology, you know that what you're doing matters. And when you see other people, you never look down at what they're doing because it matters too. So your faith gives you this inner ballast without worth, which work could destroy you. Your faith gives you this concept of the dignity of work, even simple work, without which work could bore you. Here's the third thing. Faith gives you a kind of moral compass, without which, without which work could corrupt you. And you know this is true. There's a lot of pressure, no doubt about it. We were talking about this over dinner a little bit last night, Karina and I and some friends. There's a lot of pressure. This global economy, there's, there's just so much pressure for profitability. There's so many people that are working just to make a profit. 
They're trying to keep the lights on and pay their employees and, and give their investors a good return. And increasingly, there's this pressure. You feel it, don't you? To squeeze every last drop of profitability out of the business. And so you cut corners and you cut employees and you do whatever it takes to turn a profit. And one of the things that's so challenging, I think, in the marketplace right now is that, well, those of you who are newer to the marketplace, you went to college and, and you learned because it's what taught, it's what's taught that, that in a sense morality is kind of relative, that it's person specific, that it's culturally relative, that, that nobody in the end is to say what's right or what's wrong. And then you get launched out into the world where there's all kinds of temptations to cut corners and do things that are dishonest or lack integrity or, or lack transparency. And then if you get caught, you get slammed. Turns out there is morality, or at least there's legality. Maybe they're not the same. Unless you've got a strong inner moral compass. And that's what the Christian faith provides. You're going to have a lot of trouble. You're going to have trouble saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell the investors what this stock is really worth. I'm going to tell my clients what's really going on. I'm not going to sin by omission. I'm going to be transparent with my colleagues and the people that I work with. You might lose your job. But in the long run, it's a whole lot better to have integrity. One of the big banks in Britain held a high-level meeting a few years ago, all of its top executives. It happened after a season where the banks had been called out repeatedly for a number of, of high-profile scandals. And they met together, and they met to ask, how is it that we can get values back into this business? It wasn't like this, one of them said, even 20 years ago. And it's not so much that everything that they did was illegal, but we just didn't treat our customers this way. You just didn't do that. You didn't take that much money out for yourself. It wasn't decent. It wasn't done. And over the last 20 to 25 years, this person said, it feels like it's all gone away. And we do everything that's legal and then some. So what is it that we can do, he asked, to get values back into this company. You know what everyone else said? Whose values? How do you define morality? Feels like you can't get the genie back in the bottle anymore. But if you're a Christian, you have that moral compass. And without it, you can get corrupted. Here's the last thing. The Christian faith does give you this world view, this, this view of life that shapes your character and the character of your work. And without that, your work can use you and master you. And here's what I mean. What does it mean to be a good Christian airline pilot? Land the plane. What does it mean to be a great Christian ditch digger? Dig a good ditch. Okay. But there's more to it. I mean, you knew there was more to it than that, right? What does it mean to be a Christian elementary school teacher? What does it mean to be a Christian artist or a playwright or a Christian nurse? The way that you answer that question depends to some extent, I guess, on what you think a human being should be. 
What is it that human beings are meant to be? How is it that human beings are meant to flourish? If you're a teacher, what kind of human being are you trying to produce? And you realize that without a good worldview, a good life view, you're not going to know what that is. If you're an artist, playwright, or a songwriter, you're going to ask yourself questions about what's right and and what's wrong and what's beautiful and what's true and and where should we be going as a society and, and what stories do I want to tell? You need a worldview. You need a life view. You need to take your Christian beliefs and your Christian values and convictions and you need to ask yourself questions. What kind of songs should I write? What is it that people need to hear? What kind of stories do they need to read or watch? A Christian needs to think about how their faith will distinctively shape their world. Now listen, I I know I'm kind of walking this line where I'm saying on the one hand, all work is God's work if it's done well. But but realize that there are are some areas of work where it, it has to go deeper than that where you have to ask questions about what Christian values and biblical teachings say about the work we do out there in the world among believers and non-believers. Here's one last thing. And again, it, it comes as does all of this material from, from this book. It's, it's a great story. It's a story by J.R.R. Tolkien. And they tell this story about a painter a painter who has this almost consuming vision of a tree. And he's been trying to paint it. He's been trying his whole life. And he never can get quite very much of it done. And just before he dies, the great painting that he'd been working on for his whole career is revealed. And all he got done is a leaf. One leaf. And then he dies and he gets on a train and he's headed into the afterlife. And and when he gets to heaven, as it were, he's confronted with the tree. I mean, this, this thing that he had sensed his whole life, there it was. He, he was never able to fully capture it. But he realized in that moment that, that someday everyone would see that tree. Here's the last thing that your Christian faith gives you. And this one isn't in your notes. It's a freebie. <laughs> it's an extra. <laughs> your Christian faith gives you hope. If you go into law, Gene, you go in because you want to see justice done. If you go into urban planning, you want to see great cities. If, if you go into art, you want to show people beauty. And then you actually get into those places, right, Sheen? And, and because of the fall, there's just there's these thorns and thistles all over the ground. Very often you work for years and years and years, and it's just hard. And maybe you only ever get one leaf out. Christianity gives you hope. It says the passions that we have to see the human race become everything that God created it to be, those passions aren't in vain. And even though our work in this life can be frustrating because of the nature of the fallen world, we may only get one leaf out. There's hope. 
There's hope. If you're a city planner, there's a new Jerusalem. If you're a lawyer, there's a time of perfect righteousness. If you're a nurse, there's a time when disease and decay are no more. I mean, it's, it's got to be that hope that sustains us in the middle of frustrating times. And they come. We have an inner ballast, a sense of who we are in Christ, keeps us from being whipped back and forth because of success and failure. You have this vision of God caring for His creation through work, that all work is God's work. All these things, I mean, they're crucial for us as disciples, not just on the weekend when we're at church, but out in the world, truly trying to do everything that Jesus Christ told us to do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these these few brief glimpses of insight that come from Your Word and from Your Spirit. We're struggling to understand how our faith shapes our work. And in small groups throughout the week, many of us were going to raise questions about what it means to be a Christ follower with integrity in the workplace. And God, I want to be the first to admit, we don't always know how to do it. But I pray that in those little groups, that you would be at work equipping us and informing us and challenging us. We want to be better disciples. God, we also want to thank you for who you are. You too are a worker. You worked to create the world. You created it with joy. You got your hands dirty. You, you put your hands right down into the dust and, and you made us. Pray that you would show us how to be workers made in the image of God, following in your footsteps. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.